Dotnet Rocks episode 604 with guest Brian Randall. Recorded live Saturday, June 26, 2010. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at Franklins.net. And now here's Carl and Richard. Hi, this is Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. You're listening to the .NET Rocks live weekend. We're streaming live for three straight days, 35 guests, and two bottles of bourbon. At least. <laughs> I don't know. I know what I'm drinking tonight. But <laughs> This hour we're talking with Brian Randall. So, Brian Randall. hi ho, guys. Hey, how are you? I'm fantastic. Life is really good for me. Uh, why, how come? Uh, you know, um, been busy this year. Um, you know, I mean, look at the cornucopia of great stuff that Microsoft shipped. I mean, because I, you know, my non-personal life is based around Microsoft technology, right? So, right. I mean, with Visual Studio 2010, all the new ALM goodness, you know, Team Foundation Server, but then SQL Server 2008 R2, uh, the new SharePoint 2010, Office 2010. I mean, you know, I'm... I'm awash in new technology, and those are all the big things, let alone, you know, the smaller things that go with it, like Silverlight 4, um, App Fabric, and Azure. I mean, it's just been crazy. It's just, it's goodness. Uh, out of all of those things, what's your favorite thing? What's really turning you on these days? Uh, well, you know, I still got a, you know, uh, I was going to use a rude term. But I, I, I almost a, heard that. I, I couldn't I, believe you were going to say that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I still have a, a strong interest in things related to virtualization. <laughs> So probably the biggest thing for me this year is... that a is, strong interest in your pocket? You're just happy to see me. <laughs> you know, like Roger Rabbit says, you know, yeah, it's, it's more than just a rabbit in my pocket. Uh, <laughs> uh, my, Dirtiest um, thing ever said in a Disney cartoon. There you go. <laughs> That's about it, isn't it? So, um, yeah, it's, uh, Microsoft has uh, brought two of my favorite things together. They've brought together uh, what was Team System, the Visual Studio family, uh, with... Uh, virtualization. So they have a new lab management product that's about to be released uh, very soon now that lets you basically run test labs and manage them with virtualization and hook them into builds so you can do test deployments, uh, you can run tests, and couple that with IntelliTrace. It's a great way for developers and testers to work together to find bugs. So You're I'm talking just... about TFS in the cloud? No, 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 not TFS in the cloud. Or TFS in virtual servers? No, no, no. So TFS, well, so TFS can run, you can, you can virtualize TFS or not. That's, that's orthogonal to the discussion here. Okay. The point is, uh, lab manager is an add-on. And what basically, if you think about the big picture, you're going to have a development team. And hopefully as part of that development team, you have someone dedicated or some people dedicated to quality. So your testers, quality shirts, whatever you want to label them. As part of the process, you're writing code, right? So let's, let's go through the, the simple life cycle of developing code, right? And go from the, Immature, I'm just doing it as a hobby, too. I want to be a professional. Right. So you start off with one developer. The minute you have two developers, you, you add chaos, which means we need a way to control access or at least have a way to manage change, manage conflict. So we add things like version control. Okay, that's a pretty much a no-brainer. The industry at large has said, yes, version control is good and true. We will have this. Now, there's debates over types of version control, but we can come back to that. Let's just assume, well, for the story, we'll stick to what TFS provides today. So I have a team foundation server. Yay, I got version control. Now, if I'm going to track what I'm doing, I probably want to have some mechanism tracking 
work I need to do versus problems in my code, right? You with me? Yeah. So we have work item tracking. So that lets us track bugs, lets us track tasks. Um, and T Foundation Server lets you do this all sorts of great ways so that you can do things like Agile, Scrum. You can be very formal, like with CMMI, whatever. Great. Now, the third piece of the equation, this you know, sort of holy troika, is the idea that we're going to add builds. Now, builds can be very simple in that you do something just like a nightly build where you take the latest source at you know, 8 p.m. and you just compile it. And you're praying that all those pieces for the day will, will, will compile. Now, you know, some people say, well, what's the big deal? I do that all the time. Sure you do. When you're building a simple client that talks to a DLL, that talks to a database, great. Yeah, you can probably F5 that all day long in Visual Studio, and it's great. But when you're building large-scale applications, we have 20, 30, 50, 100 solu- you know, projects within a solution, you know, people don't always want to have the latest code. They want to have stuff that works. Yeah. So what happens is you have this integration issue. So build lets you at least do a, a sanity test to say, does it at least compile together? That's the bare minimum. Now you go a little further and you say, well, maybe we should run automated tests during our build. Types of tests you might run include unit tests. You might run integration tests. Okay, so that's awesome. So now you've got these three things humming together. These are all built into TFS. And when you use TFS or not across the industry, there's great technology you can do it with besides Microsoft. But the industry agrees those are all good things to do. But now here's the problem. I've got my stuff built. I've even got unit tests, but maybe some different types of automated integration tests. But at the end of the day, complex applications generally, we have found, require human manual testing. No matter what people say about automated testing, the industry still runs on manual testing. In fact, that's where Microsoft put their effort in the 2010 release for testers. Somebody's got to sit in front of that application, install it, go through the process, and find the stupidity. Exactly. You know, because you're doing things like acceptance testing, you're doing things like um, functional testing, you're, looking, you're doing things that are really hard to automate at first, right? Because let's be honest, it's very quickly for a human to make a bunch of assertions within 30 seconds looking at a screen. Assertions that would take you, you'll say, five minutes uh, an assertion. So let's see, if I can do, say, with my eyes, say, let's just round it, round it to 10 assertions in 30 seconds by just visually looking at the screen for spelling errors, alignment, etc. How long does it take you to write an automated test to do that? So the ROI is, is still there that manual testing can, when done right, provide value. But here's the problem. If you're testing an end-tier, third-generation application, getting it set up and having all the right pieces can be complicated. Let's be honest, testers don't always get the best hardware configurations out there, right? I mean, they usually get a lot of developer hand-me-downs in most organizations I've found. Yep. So Microsoft said, hmm, virtualization is hot. It's echo-friendly because I can take one big box and have it mimic an entire domain if I want. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Now we've got this technology called System Center Virtual Machine Manager that we've already built for IT pros to manage large-scale networks. What if we built on top of those two pieces, Hyper-V and System Center Virtual Machine Manager, a tool that lets testers and developers define virtual environments, an environment being one or more virtual machines? Then you're talking about client machines. No, I'm talking about if these can be server virtual machines or clients. In other words, I can define an entire virtual domain, a domain controller, Three Windows 7 clients, uh, SQL Server database server running Server 2008, a web server, all is virtual machines. And you only spin them up when you're ready to do these tests. 
Exactly. And here's where it's really cool. So I've got this nightly build running. Well, why don't I take this build and add a separate build on top of it called a workflow build? And when I grab my existing build, it says, okay, first thing you do is run the build and do all the stuff it needs to do on the build server. Right. Assuming it succeeds, I want you to take the output from that build and deploy it to this virtual environment. Oh, so when my testers come in in the morning, they can go connect to these virtual environments and they can test right away. And then this is where it just is awesome, right? So I'm sitting there as a tester, I'm going through and I find a bug. Well, you know, the tr- traditional mechanism of finding a bug is not great. With 2010, you, we, we create what we call actionable bugs, and it's really awesome because basically if you're using the test tools that Microsoft provides, it collects all the system data, it will capture a video of the tester doing their, their, their test steps. If they want, it will record an action log, which means it records everything you clicked on. And then finally, if you're using the high-end versions, you, get, you can get IntelliTrace logs, which means you will get this virtual TiVo log that you can go to Visual Studio and walk back and see the call stack, memory, all the events that were executing. But with Team Lab, it's even better because I can attach to my bug report a link to a snapshot. So the developer clicks the snapshot link, and after it spins up the environment, it applies a snapshot, and you're in the environment just like the tester was when they filed the bug. Interesting. Oh, it just gives me chills. Yeah, so, well, it means there's no, you know, this is all about destroying the whole cannot reproduce problem. Right. It, You've literally no thrown more, them. No more, no repo. Exactly. Yeah. No right. more, no repo. It, do, it doesn't, it works on my machine. Yeah. Exactly. And so with the power of that is I have the ability to, number one, have this mechanism for my team members to interact. And with virtualization, I can get much larger coverage on the types of configurations I need to test. Right? Because when you want to test real hardware, it's hard to tear down and reset up. Yeah, there's tools like Ghost or the various automated deployment tools. But with virtualization, I can keep a library of Windows XP, Windows Vista, Windows 7 clients. I can keep different types of servers out there as base templates. And then with the lab environment and the build server, I can deploy on a nightly, weekly basis so that my testers have a variety of things to test against. The point is my testers will now probably have more things to test than they'll have time to do. So that's, that's probably the thing that's got me the most excited on the software front. It's very cool stuff, no question about it. The only downside is it requires uh, Ultimate Edition. Well, so yes and no. If you want IntelliTrace, you do need Ultimate. That is correct. Right. But you still get a lot without Ultimate. You know, so you need to you need to look at all the possibilities. For example, with Premium, you have the ability to do coded UI tests. With the test SKU, you can still do all the automated testing. Um, sorry, all the manual testing and actual bug stuff. And you can still hook into snapshots and environments. You just won't be able to have IntelliTrace logs. Right. And that's still powerful, right? To the ability to, because once that environment's up, configured correctly, I can attach my debugger to that environment. I can debug live, too. Well, which is cool. Um, and But the lab manager's not out yet, right? Yeah, so technically the way it is, it's technically a, you can call it a beta 3, an RC 2, whatever. It is a pre-release build still. They're going to be shipping real soon now, um, to uh, use a Microsoft phrase, uh, we definitely are shipping soon. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, they're they're very close. Uh, they're just they wanted they really they took a lot of feedback. They really want to be as strong as possible. I mean, it's it's a 1.0 product, so you know I've got my list of things I want for version two. Um, and a big one for a lot of people is going to be VMware support. But the bottom line is it's still going to be a compelling release, particularly if you're a Microsoft shop. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's just, uh, just waiting to actually get it into place. The other angle on this that I think is potentially interesting is like you describe this massive project, right? Where, you know, there's all these different apps that are working together and have to integrate and so forth. And those, if you just have a build server, when you want to do a complete build, it can take hours and hours and hours. And the, I like the idea that you can harness a bunch of machines via VMs to sort of parallelize the build process, Absolutely. kick all those things off you know, simultaneously, and then pull it all together. Yeah, no, it's, it, they really, you know, for, for larger scale projects, it, it's amazing what you can do now. Uh, the whole build agent architecture was enhanced in 2010 uh, to support that notion. Um, you have the ability to tag build agents that's supporting different types of build configurations. And you can easily spin up build agents as you need them and tear them down. Right. It's really powerful. Well, it also, you know, the interesting idea, and we're starting to see this more and more now with massive virtualization is that we're starting to shuffle workloads across servers at night. You know, dur during the day, I've got lots of servers support, lots of memory and so forth allocated to my exchange instances because there's lots of mail going on. And at night, I'll start to spin some of those down because there's just not as much mail moving around that's important anyway. And now that I have those processing resources available, maybe I'll harness those to do a massively powerful build or, or you know, huge stack of tests. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, in in in, in the dynamic you know d dynamic IT environment now, we really the options are just crazy. What you can do, and you know, with tools like you know uh, VMware has their stuff, and Hyper-V now with live migration, you know, I can even take running virtual machines within a cluster and move them around hosts. This also makes my maintenance window so much easier to work with. You know, because I can if I need to update the host, which is going to happen regardless of whether it's Microsoft, VMware, Zen, or anything else. I can now take running virtual machines, I don't have to shut them down, move them across the cluster to another host, then I can do any host maintenance I need to and then bring them back online. And you're right, you're based upon demand. Um, you know, coming in SP1 for R2 of Hyper-V is going to be dynamic memory, where they'll be able to allocate memory on demand, based, so you can basically set a minimum baseline of how much memory a virtual machine needs, and then you can set this window that says, okay, if I need more memory, go ahead and give it memory based upon host availability. Um, that's pretty compelling stuff. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik JustCode. If you're like me, you're probably using some productivity add-on in Visual Studio to check, refactor, and test your code. But how would you like to get a complete list of your solution's errors on the fly as you type, and not just for the opened files? The new kit on the block, JustCode, does just that for all supported .NET languages as well as JavaScript. It's like having a compiler running all the time, only that JustCode is faster and requires less CPU time. One area where JustCode is definitely better is performance. The tool provides the fastest code analysis and better performance without slowing down Visual Studio. Another reason to try it is JavaScript support. It'll help you read, navigate, and refactor your JavaScript code better than you've ever imagined. Learn more about the features JustCode offers and download a trial at Telerik.com slash JustCode. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. So how much experience do you have with this kind of stuff? Have you set this up for, for uh, how, you know, how many clients have you set it up for? Uh, mostly Microsoft. I've got a customer right now. We're doing a, a full deployment. They were crazy. It was funny. We had a phone call, and they go, so we want to set up um, – TFS 2010, we want to do lab management, and we want high availability of stuff. And it was funny, I go, so well, 
what's high available to you? And he goes, you know, how much downtime do you want? And he goes, well, you know, an hour. And I go, okay, let's talk about your hardware costs right now. So he started doing some math. I was like, okay, we're going to, you know, we're going to pare it down a bit. So um, it's really changed the way people are building. So this company has a distributed development team, and their data center is in the middle of the country, and they want to have a warm standby at another data center. And we're doing it all with Hyper-V virtualization. Um, and we looked at basically different options. And with Hyper-V and then uh, Data Protection Manager, we'll be able to take running snapshots and backups of the system as it's running, as well as do standard nightly backups, and they'll be able to ship them over the Internet to the second data center. So we're hoping to lose no more than you know, a couple hours of work or a day at most um, with this technology. So it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, it's a very interesting rig. And, and the question is, does this make sense in a continuous integration scheme, or is this a once-a-day kind of build approach to things? Well, I think with lab management, it's, 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 you're not going to do it. I mean, the cost for doing a continuous integration would be, the hardware requirements would be probably out of most people's budgets. Right. Uh, because the problem is virtual machines, you know, especially if you're running modern versions of Windows, your baseline virtual machine is going to cost you six to eight gigabytes of, of hard disk space. Um, you know, that's your minimum for the OS. So if you're building a, you have a typical int here, let's just say you're doing something simple with, say, three VMs, right? So let's do the math, and let's say that's 24 gigs. Even with gigabit Ethernet and everything else, and then the cost of doing snapshots, you know, you're talking minutes to an hour depending upon your hardware, to do that full build and deployment, right? So that's where you have, to, you're, you have to judge the cost. I think CI has a lot of benefit. The, the, the key is continuous integration, just like with unit tests, has always been make it fast because we don't want people to not do it. If it takes too long, they'll find ways to avoid it. So I think, you know, you definitely could do it, but you're talking a hardware cost I think most development teams don't have, is my, is my guess. Absolutely. And well, and you know, this is the whole power of the virtualization approach is utilizing the hardware you do have more efficiently. Uh, but what I see with most sites is they can't afford enough build hardware to really take advantage of the build potential they have. And testing is always underpowered. The fact that we could just harness machines sort of blank, running essentially our own mini cloud. That's the, the biggest potential there. Although, you know, for better or worse, you could do this with EC2 as well. Oh, absolutely. You can't um, do it with Azure, but you could do it with EC2. Right. The issue with EC2, right, there's still the issue of there's a cost issue because, you know, EC2, is, as nice as it is, isn't free for your cycles. Um, so those virtual machines. Um, the other thing is managing out the off-premise issue and the fact that you still have upload bandwidth constraints for most people, right? You, you look at, you know, look at your typical business that is buying their, their, their Internet access. What's their typical upload bandwidth? right? Yeah. You know, how fast can you push things up to the cloud? And the question is, though, is the build server, are you going to trust your build server, your IP, going over the internet to an EC server and building up in the cloud? That's the question. You know, some people are gung-ho. I've talked to other customers that, you know, they're still terrified to provide access, remote access to their, their dev environments. You know, I have a customer in San Diego um, that I just went down there, and I, had to, I have to go down there in person because they will not give me remote access. They screw up something on their environment and I had to go down there because they're paranoid. Um, and I think that's the downside of the cloud. A lot of companies are too paranoid, and they will do it in-house before they'll let it outside. So it's both, both sides to it. Well, and, you know, there's always encrypted channels. Like, there's ways to get to EC2 that are secure. Uh, it's just this idea that source code's not that big, 
and uh, being able to push it up somewhere and, again, harness horsepower only when you need it. Right, but so here's the thing, though. If I put my source code up on EC2, right, just, I'm playing devil's advocate. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not saying I, I believe or don't believe. But if I put my source up there, my source is now up there, and I build, I'm leaving my binaries up there. I'm going to stuff up there for as long as that instance is alive. And I'm having an inherent amount of trust into how Amazon protects that environment and how protected that EC2 instance or set of instances is. But these are only VMs. You put the, you chose the operating system and you secured it. The security risk is yours. It's no different than the machines you've got in your lab connected to the internet. Oh, uh, that's not true though. Au contraire, mon frere, right? They, there's still physical access to the host machine. Yeah. Right? And there's still internal access to Amazon's network that I can't control. Ah, uh, so you're worried that Jeff Bezos is sniffing around in your source code. Uh. You, never, you never know. I mean, like I said, the, the things I get told by customers is crazy, right? You know? The thing is, most people believe their stuff is more interesting than it is. Yeah. Right? Unless you're the government, unless you're a big bank, right? I'm going to be wrong. There's, there's obviously industrial espionage out there, and I've, you know, I've seen it. I've been involved. Um, in requests for litigation support, you know. So, I mean, it is out there. I mean, I should, should completely, you know, downplay that it does exist. But I think a lot of people, I've looked at some of their code, and, and trust me, it's like if people thought they wouldn't want it. <laughs> right. Um, but there's, you know, there's trade secrets, there's trade formulas, and people, you know, they have their right to want to own their stuff. So, yeah, I think EC2 provides a very compelling opportunity, and I think Microsoft, I'm surprised how slow they've been to address this. I mean, I think what they've done with Azure is great, but, you know, I'm coming this. They have System Center VMA, they have Hyper-V. Why aren't they offering something like this? Even in, in, I mean, why are they doing what Google's been doing for years? Run things in beta for two years, for Christ's sake. Right. You yeah, know? never ship. Yeah, well, it's, well, I mean, how long Google Mail finally went RTM what, last year or something. They've been on beta for two or three years. You know, people, <clears throat> now, granted, they gave free access to it, and maybe that's the problem. Microsoft isn't willing to even provide free beta access. But the fact of the matter is, I'm surprised for all the effort they've been putting in server-based virtualization that they do not have something yet or haven't even talked about it. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it's still it's still out there. We still don't really know. Yeah, and you know what's crazy about Amazon, right? Is Amazon first started doing with Linux, and then, of course they're doing Windows too, which is just the part that just cracks me up, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, um, so you know, on one hand, there's someone at Microsoft who's doing the licensing with Amazon who's just like partying, right? Just going, this is great until we do our own thing. And they tell me to cut them off or something stupid. But, you know, it's, it's crazy. Hey, uh, Brian, speaking of crazy and crazy customers, we're, uh, we're really digging for stories this weekend about, <laughs> you know, protecting uh, the guilty with well, not revealing their names, but oh, of course, some crazy things that you've seen out there at customer sites. Well, one of my favorite stories that I've been share, that I share with people related to Team Foundation Server is goes back to my justifying what I do for a living, which is education. Right? I I try and help people help themselves. Right? And we we all do this different ways: doing .NET Rocks articles, training. Um, and I had a customer; they paid me to come down and set up their environment, and they did this on the beta of 2008 of Team Foundation Server, hmm. and they had lots of different issues in their environment, but that's fine. So they got started. Now, you know, here's the thing. I, I'm, I'm obviously always available on different types of technology, email, cell phone, right. et cetera. Well, for whatever reason, the person that was set up to run the TFS server thought they knew best. Um, and what they ended up doing, finally, after a month is, is, of, of not calling me and then calling me, was they're going, you know, we're, we're trying to manage our branches, Right. And version control. And 
we get the feeling it's not doing something right because I can't seem to get rid of them easily. And they go, well, really, what are you doing? And basically what they were doing was, in Team Foundation Server, to be clear, there's, there's two ways you can do a branch in, in, in functional basis. One is I go into the source control tool within a team project, and I use the branch command. Of course, I can do the command line also. There's another way, though, which is what they had found to do it, and that is when you create a team project, there's an option to create a team project and have the version control base based upon the tip of an existing Team Foundation server project. So what they were doing is they were creating a new team project every time they wanted to do a branch. Mm. Now, if you, if you work with Team Foundation server, you can understand how horrific this is. Because basically you're creating this entire new repository within the Team Foundation server just because you want a separate branch. Now, branches in Team Foundation server are relatively inexpensive because they simply set up a bunch of pointers to the files. Only as you make changes do you incur file duplication costs. Um, but by doing this entire tip, they, they basically are losing all their management function, their ability to integrate. And here's the problem. Team Foundation Server doesn't make it easy to delete team projects because it's it's a very nuclear option. So she couldn't figure out she you know, have you know basically forty seven different team projects all oh, on man. her list, and it was just confusing the heck out of people because people didn't know what they're supposed to connect to. Or yeah. So that's probably the, that's probably the biggest one I've run into in, in recent memory of just what were you thinking? Right. Um, another customer um, we did an install, and uh, when we did their install. You know, DBAs are, 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 are an interesting breed. They, um, they like to run their show. And T-Foundation Server requires SQL Server. Um, and this company uses a managed uh, SQL Server environment. So when we did the install, our install failed initially. And it's because they have some automated tools that get automatically deployed in these triggers that get put into any new d- database that gets created. Um, and they do it for, I guess, backup and logging and management functionality. So we figured out the problem. I told him, hey, turn this crap off. Let us get the install done. Well, we did, and life was good, and we left the customer. A couple months later, the customer calls me. We're having problems, and their problems are really weird, really screwy, and yeah. I don't want to give out too many details because it'll kind of show out who the person is. But basically, they're having these problems, and so I was like, well, you know, have you checked this and this? And I go, no. I go, well, I can't, you know, I can't, I can't figure out what's going on. So I go, let's, let's do a trace, right? And so we started monitoring, and sure enough, the DBAs had decided after the fact to go put this stuff back in after we told them to take it out. Um, you know, and that's the problem when you have centralized IT trying to manage the developer environment, right? They, they, they have their rules that they need to follow. And someone saw the list and said, well, this, these databases, you know, in, in, this, in the case of TFS 2008, all these databases aren't enabled. What the heck's going on? Who's doing their job? <laughs> Turn them back on. Okay. <laughs> like thanks guys yeah very nice very nice just me yeah dbas are your friends no really i mean i you know a lot of good dbas are my friends yeah oh you see nice, bring them chocolate nice qualifier there good dbas hmm. can't dbas just be your friends <laughs> dbas are people too you know yeah well, i yeah, have to be good i can just see the hate mail i'm gonna get now yeah yeah Hey, hey, I, hey, I'm a firm believer that an app without a database isn't really an app. So that's what, yeah, I love databases and I love DBAs. One great line from Pat Hines, he says, Now somebody told me once that 95% of all applications use a database. I want to know, where are the other five? 
the heck are they doing anyway? So, Mr. Franklin. Yeah. You know that uh, I'm not the only one in this world with a portable data center. Yeah. Yeah. Mr. The, uh, the man of big hair also has yeah, one? Yeah, the guy on the phone here. Is the, uh, we, he and I were comparing our rolling cases full of computers the other day at, uh, at TechEd, as I recall. Brian, yeah. do you also have a problem getting through security in the airport? Uh, I, I, I scare people, you know, because I, 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 do, I, I do approach the lines just like George Clooney and up in the air. And people freak out when they see me. And generally, you know, I have no problem getting my stuff unpacked and loaded. It's just whether how interested security is in the amount of crap I have. And generally, it's a high interest. <laughs> well, you mix that in with a passport full of unusual stamps, and you're in for a fun day at the TSA. <laughs> oh, exactly. Yeah, I just did this around-the-world tour for Microsoft, you know, and I did India. Um, in India, a funny story there is I had to bribe my way into the country. Um, they said I had too much computer equipment and that I had to pay a, a duty of like 38% on its value. Now, how many computers were you carrying when you came to India? Um, well, I was carrying three full laptops as well as a mini uh, Dell Zinio, um, two phones, um, four large external hard drives, basically two Raptors and then two big uh, two terabyte drives. And then I had about four SSDs with me um, and two switches and a router. Right. But you saw just the basics, really. It really is. And this is what you and I have talked about, right? My, my current density limit is really about how much I'm willing to try and carry on and fit in the, 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 the rules of the physical space usage, right? Because um, we, we, of course, can't trust anything underneath the belly of the plane that's hardware-related, Um and, you know, FedEx isn't a really good alternative because I usually, I'm using this stuff at night, right? So I can't let it go uh, to be shipped. So you and I have the same problem. How much real CPU power can I get in my carry-on baggage? Right. Yeah, in a bag that I can stick in the overhead bin. Well, exactly, because it's, it's carry-on, you know, the rules are simple. Get on, get stowed, get sit down and have a drink. Right. Um, and well, you, we flew out together from, uh, from L.A., you know, it, it was it was amazing that the people that were up in that same cabin together uh, it was you, uh, Yuval Louis, Michelle Bustamante, uh, Bob Boschman, and myself. So was it five of us? Yeah. Um, just a few rows. It was just funny looking at this all with our, our, our kit. The difference was you and I had our, our carry-on loaded with hardware. Yuval and Michelle had theirs with clothes. <laughs> right. We still had to go pick up our clothing bags because we're not going to check our machines. <laughs> exactly. My bag had six dual-core four gig servers in it yeah and all the impending networking gear for a bag that weighs about 40 pounds which doesn't make it legal carry on but you know hey as long as you can put in the overhead bin they generally don't bit yeah and that's but more it's got to go in the overhead bin because you're not checking that nope not gonna check it no right? but yeah by far my heaviest bag is that bag the clothing bag's light in comparison speaking of checked bags u.s airways has a great feature these days that if you're flying from oslo to boston with a guitar you will get to Boston a week and a half before your guitar gets there. Nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Got your guitar back yet there, buddy? Just yesterday. Oh, very nice. <laughs> <laughs> so what's in your bag, uh, Brian? Like, what machines are you carrying? So right now my current kit is as follows. Um, my do email, make sure I can do basic stuff, is a... Lenovo T60, or sorry, X61T tablet um, with an uh, Intel 160-gig SSD drive and 8-gig of RAM. Um, that is my main machine 
for email. I have Visual Studio on it. I can even I can do a lot on it. Mm-hmm. The processor is a little underpowered, but beyond that, it's it's a great machine. And the best part is I can use it, you know, with my big belly and coach, or even if I'm lucky enough to be in the the front of the bus um, with someone leaning back. So that's good. My number two machine that goes with me is a Dell M6400 quad core Intel Extreme processor. I've got dual Intel 160 SSDs uh, for 300 gig RAID zero disk space. Um, it has 16 gig of RAM and an NVIDIA 1 gig video card. Um, and then my third machine has been varying because I've been trying different things. I Just before TechEd, just on a whim, um, I was looking to get a new uh, Lenovo W510 because those will do 16 gig of RAM also. Right. But they're back ordered on the good displays and stuff. And I needed something quickly. So I jumped over to the Dell outlet, and for 1100 bucks, I was able to buy a, I don't even know the model, to be honest. All they know is it has an i7, a 2.4 gigahertz processor, so it's got, you know, four physical cores, eight threads, so it looks like it's got eight cores and windows, um, eight gig of RAM, and I threw an SSD drive in that. So that's machine number three right now. Um, what I'm really looking to do this summer, assuming that accounting approves my budget, uh, which is my wife. Uh, <laughs> accounting. I plan to take make the Dell turn it into a, a, a server here at the house, and then I want to get I want to go back to what I used to do, which was carry the same exact hardware. Right. Um, and, and get basically I want to get two of the Lenovo W510s because, um, you know, I really don't as much as I like to have the the thing I love about the Dell has a gorgeous screen, it's big, and it's great for Cody, but I don't do as much on the road. As I used to, I'm usually ready to go, and I'm mostly just testing. Right. And the other thing is, I don't watch movies and stuff like I used to. If I do, I can you know, watch it on the TV or throw my iPad mm-hmm. or whatever. So uh, the smaller form factor of the W510s appeals to me. Um, plus, they have USB three now on them. Uh, but the 16 gig RAM is the big thing. I want two of those so I can run my entire team lab environment demos and everything, um, and have the, the, that kind of hardware to do it on. So that's what I'm looking at. But this is what we and I have talked about, right? I would like to do what you're doing is carry some of like the the Dell Zinios, the Mac Minis, the, the smaller headless machines. Like why am I paying for the overhead of glass? Right. Yeah. Why are you carrying screens and batteries around? Exactly. So really, you know, I basically want to have the two machines because I've got to have two functional machines with, with screens and keyboards. But beyond that, I've been looking. Now, here's the interesting thing. You and I have talked about this. And so I explored the Dell Zinio. The Dell Zinio is nice because it's user serviceable, really easy. I can put it in an SSD drive if I want. Um, it supports 8 gig of RAM. The two big downsides, and you know, I've talked about this, is I only get one gigabit Ethernet port. Right. And number two, for the Zinio, it's using a low-voltage Athon processor. So it does do Hyper-V, but it's a little underpowered. Yeah. Now, the new alternative I'm looking at, the problem is price, right? This is not, these are not cost-effective. The new Mac minis are pretty compelling mm-hmm. because user-serviceable RAM, which means I can put 8 gig of RAM there for about 250 extra bucks. Base, um, you can put an SSD drive in, although doing it's an act of God, so you either have to hire someone right. to do it or you spend a day. I'd probably just send them in for 100 bucks to have it done. Right. Don't you totally void the warranty if you open that thing no, up, too? No, they don't. They, the Mac, first of all, the RAM now has, the, the new one has a little swivel top to open and replace the RAM. Huh. That's brand new. Yep, take a look at the website. And they, do, they let you upgrade the hard drive if you want. That does not void the warranty. I'm surprised Mac users know how to change RAM or know what RAM is, for that matter. 
Well, just, I'm not touching that one, man. Just you're evil, man. That's the, and the as long as the Mac fanboy. As long as my uh, I am too, actually. As long as we're on, uh, as long as I got the microphone, I just wanted to mention that uh, the United States is losing to Ghana two to one. Ghana we're is, in extra time right now. Yeah, yeah and Uruguay over. is kicking South Korea's butt two to one. Just in case you want to keep one eye on the World Cup, uh, I'm here got, for you. I got the TV on about with, it, with it muted in my office, so. Yeah, nice. Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, Give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. So the, the Mac Mini is really compelling. There's only two problems with it. Number one, to get it fully outfitted... Even if I go third party and everything with an SSD drive, and the reason the SSD drive is just I'm addicted now to the perf. But we should talk oh, about yeah. it just before we end. Um, Me too. But the if you take put the SSD drive in there, you're looking at a machine that's going to run you close to eighteen hundred to two grand, depending upon how you acquire your parts. Ouch. Yeah, and yeah. It, it's a dual core. It's really nice, but the other thing it lacks is I can't get a second gigabit Ethernet port. Um, which when you're doing a lot of stuff you and I do with load balancing, load testing, and, and virtualization, yeah. you really could use a little extra oomph there. Express yeah. card? Um, well, no, the, the, that's the problem. Mac Mini doesn't have an Express card slot. Oh, yeah. Mac Mini. Yeah, and, yeah. and USB well, to uh, Ethernet just doesn't work. So get a Mac Maxi. Well, well, yeah. So unfortunately, so the, but the Mac, the Mac Mini is compelling because it's so nice off the shelf. Now, I've looked around at the third-party market, and the problem, Richard, that I have, and you and I need to spend some time on this, is I can't find the good, like I found things with more Ethernet ports, but they don't have good processors. Right. You know, it's, it's especially a lot of these things are, are designed for, you know, home theater systems, yeah, inside, uh, you know, people's yachts or behind the wall thing. So they're shooting for things like low power and size, but I want a little more beef. Yeah, we, what we're looking for is an i7-based motherboard that'll run a quad or eight-core rig with 16 gigs of RAM, three gigabit Ethernet ports in it, in a six-inch by six-inch mini ITX form factor. That's what we want. That's Someone, what we want. If you find that, tell us about it. We will buy and build these. So I have a Toshiba Cosimo, and it has everything except the, the it has one port, one uh, network port, but it does have express cards, so you might be able to find a dual port. And uh, it does support up to 16 gigs of RAM. It does have the i7-8 uh, core. But the only problem is it's bigger than a Sherman tank. Well, exactly. That's the same with my Dell, right? The Dell M6500 or my 6400. I have Express Card. I can do all the stuff I want it, but it's huge. And I'm paying the glass tax because I have that huge screen. Yeah. Jeff says you can theoretically use tagged VLANs at least to fake it if you've got a VLAN-aware switch. Yeah, that's a that's another set of problems. So they, you know, generally when we're doing this high load server stuff, it's the cache in the NIC that fails anyway. Yeah. You try and VLAN it, it'll barf. Uh, but you know, the real vision I have here is this idea that we put just the boards and hard mount them into a rollaway bag with a centralized power supply and an iSCSI controller with a set of SSDs, so that you really USB could 3. check the thing. I really USB want to be able to check nice. it. Yeah, it's just that iSCSI is special. You know, it's particularly well suited. If we're actually, I have some do, special friends too. Yeah. yeah, 
It's if you're really going to do clustering, you need shared iSCSI. Okay. And the problem is with, with that too, is, and I'm sure you found Richard is iSCSI is persnickety, right? There's different implementations. A lot of you like a lot of these devices you'll see for home direct access uh, network storage. Like the Drobo will claim they have iSCSI support, but they don't have the correct iSCSI no, support. No, no, Jeff's got his thumbs down. Hey, uh, we have a question from Twitter from Jerome, who is a caller before. Uh, any kind of pitfalls with virtual lab management feature in TFS 2010? For example, IntelliTrace is great, but it must cover everything. Okay, so pitfalls, um, when you say it must cover everything, boy, that's a... Um... So let's be clear. <clears throat> IntelliTrace and Lab Manager are V1s. So let's talk about some of the pitfalls. Number one, IntelliTrace doesn't uh, fully support 64-bit. Um, it's primarily 32-bit. It doesn't support all environments at this point. Um, so yes, it's you're going to have that kind of pitfall there immediately. Uh, virtualization, you can run 32-bit or 64-bit VMs, so no problem there. The problem is it's Hyper-V only. I know a lot of shops have VMware environments, and this will not help you this release. They will have VMware support. Um, it's the reason we can say that with confidence is that System Center VMMM supports VMware. So it's mostly a matter of time and uh, development cost uh, to support that. The other pitfall, to be honest, is that it's a bit of a beast. I mean, I've, I've spent a lot of time building these, these entire lab environments, and it's not just put in the CD and make it work. Uh, the planning is significant to define the hardware um, and software licenses you need. Um, and then the configuration. So, um, you know, just don't go on blind. This, this isn't something you're going to do over a weekend. It's something that's going to take you a couple of weeks to plan. I've been working mm-hmm. with this one customer, and I've, you know, I've put in, uh, right now, where am I at? About 12 hours just writing out the basic analysis, and we haven't even, you know, we haven't even talked about doing it. We're just talking about what do you think you need. Um, so those are things you have to think about. Absolutely, yeah. And, and it reminds me of TFS of old. You know, we're getting better at setting up TFS now, but this rig is back to what it, what TFS was like when we first started, and configuration was everything kind of thing. Well, I think you're 100% right there, Richard. You know, I joke, you know, that TFS 2010 puts me out of my basic job of where I used to just go install for people. It's It's gotten that much easier. Um, the, the downside, though, is, of course, if you want to do SharePoint now, you want to do lab management, you still need professionals like me and the other, you know, consultants out there. Or you need to invest your effort, right? None of this is rocket science. Let's be honest. You know, I like you know, I don't want to make anyone think that we're smarter than they are. Well, maybe a little. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even think rocket science is rocket science anymore. No. No, I think I think the, the point is it's all about bandwidth, right? We dedicate our time to this, right? You and Richard and I, you have we have a Harvard fetish, you know. All of us, Carl, you know, we we love to tinker. We we have. No did you just say lives. you guys have a hardware fetish? Yes. Is that what you said? Yes, he did, yeah. and I'm not even going to correct him. It's I'm absolutely true. Just checking. Okay. I just yeah, I love my hardware. It's I honest. Love my hardware. Okay. It's my precious. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, now you're just being weird. <laughs> uh, but 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 fundamentally, it's 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 that you know I've spent the last year and a half working with lab management. You know, I work with Microsoft, so that's why I know it better than you do. You could you can spend the next two three weeks. You know, a month and figure it out, and that's where you just have to do the analysis. Do you have someone who can, you can allocate to figure out lab management, or is it better to hire someone like me or the other great people out there who know this stuff? And that's what happened with TFS, right? People said, "Well, we'll try it. It sucks. We'll hire someone." And now, in 2010, a lot of people are saying, "No, I can do it myself." Right. Um, but you know, I think that's the thing with software, right? It's we 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 keep rolling forward with making things easier, but then adding complexity because we say we have more bandwidth to have more features. 
Um, you guys were talking about that with Egan, you know, and the, the way the phones are and how they've evolved. And same thing with Don XML and SOA and everything. And, yeah, it's getting richer and richer. Yeah. And I'm feeling generous again, Richard. I think I want to give another uh, Telerik premium collection away <laughs> to the next caller. So the next caller who calls in with a question for Brian, you will win such software. Such wonderful, wonderful software. So what? soon Lab Manager will ship, my friend, and then what will you do with your time? Uh, you know, that'll be the interesting thing. Well, mostly, like, it's funny because I spent most of the last year working very close with Microsoft, building materials to help, you know, sell and evangelize the great stuff that's in 2010. Right. And we're doing some new stuff uh, for the partner conference next month to show off the breadth of the platform. So we have this demo architecture based upon a fake airline called Blue Yonder Airlines. Yes. And uh, we're about to, we're going to be releasing uh, real soon um, the RTM copy of what we used to launch, so you can play with that. And then we're going to be adding on for WPC, and we'll release more of that, which shows off you know using Windows Mobile Seven, uh, uh, sorry Windows Phone Seven. I want to say WinMo, and people want to kill me. Right. Um, the Windows Phone Seven. Uh, we've got two sample apps we're building for that. We've got some Silverlight stuff. We've got App Fabric, both in the cloud as well as App Fabric Server. You know the new caching stuff. Um, so that's going to keep me busy for a little bit, and then you know I don't know. I'm, you know, I've had I've had all these fantasies of things I want to do, but you know, <laughs> making a living just keeps keeping me busy. Yeah, yeah, there's so much to do, and and you've been building labs for Microsoft for a long time, right? I mean, typically when I go to TechEd, if I'm playing with hands-on labs, that's a lot of your work, isn't it? It is, and this year they're just because of the way time worked out, we didn't actually build a new set, and hopefully in uh, FY11, because Microsoft starts their new fiscal year July first. One of the things we're going to do is we're going to take a lot of the high-level, what we would call the more marketing demo, you know, the magic demos, and turn those into more deep labs that show you how to take advantage of the technology. So um, that's hopefully what we do because I love, I love that experience, that creativity that goes into building it, and then, and then knowledge transfer showing you how to take it into your own application. So, yeah, I'm hoping to do a lot of that. We have a uh, caller with a question, uh, Brent Bohemont from Falls Church, Virginia who also was our next caller, so he wins the uh, Teller Premium Collection. Brent, go ahead with your question. Well, a little less a question than a uh, comment on your uh, hardware fetish. Um, I have I used to do uh, industrial oh, equipment and uh, came across some really neat uh, small computers that could be installed in industrial cabinets um, def- and came across about the feature set you guys were looking for um, you know, high, large processor, multiple NICs, um, and also some kind of oddball features, but really neat mechanical packages that you would come by on these uh, also. From where? From where? Uh, this is actually German. Um, a place called Beckhoff, B-E-C-K-H-O-F-F. And the uh, the field service people would always come in and, and give you a demonstration and say, I wish I could afford one of these to put behind my TV as a media center. There you go. Wow. Oh, it com- comes with German pricing then. Uh, yeah, yeah, and uh, we call it. Don't get in a huge hurry because they also come with uh, six week availability. Ah, well, good things are worth waiting for. Oh, this one, Richard, I'm going to be wasting some time this afternoon with this website, baby. <laughs> thank you, Brent. My wife, my wife hates you now, but thank you. Ah, uh, <laughs> ah, yes. And what was the name of this company again? Beckhoff. B e c k h o f f. New automation technology. Yep, and they actually their whole uh, whole 
spiel is doing automation with Windows-based PCs. Cool. Wow. Yeah, that's good. That's cool gadgety no matter what. I'm going to have to find out more about this. And, and actually, their new uh, new version of software, they've been doing this since the 80s, but their next version is going to be integrated with Visual Studio. No, really? Wow. Yeah, which is kind of a cool and definitely a step step up for industrial automation software. Yeah, that sounds excellent stuff. Well, maybe we can get more horsepower into the suitcases. The only problem I have, <laughs> when you start mounting motherboards with multiple NICs and all the switches and the set isolated power supply and an iSCSI controller with multiple SSDs, at some point somebody at the DSA is going to say, that's a bomb. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You're, I don't care what you say. That's a, it, it has blinky lights. And wires everywhere. You will come with me. It's a bomb. <laughs> Although uh, the field service people used to make the same joke, and they would note that you know they've fl- gone through security. I mean, these are people who fly you know almost daily. Yeah, it, all these things through security constantly, and they're like, no one ever asks about this. You know, I I always have a routine about my rollaway bag where I talk about my experiences the TSA with it, but my last two flights with it. I didn't get secondaried. I'd been secondaried every time with this bag. In the last couple, it's like somebody finally sent a note to them saying, he's traveling with it still, just let it go. And, <laughs> but exactly. I'm almost disappointed. You know, I get to the other side, I'm like, you're not going to open the bag? Really? What's wrong with you? <laughs> yeah, you didn't even look for my note that says, this is not a bomb. <laughs> no, this machine is the bomb, baby. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny though. I got out of New Orleans and coming in, you know, LA did the double scan. But oh yeah, going out of New Orleans, I was able to just check all, you know, go through and. Well, all those guys, way. all those guys in New Orleans are hungover anyway, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I was on the six a.m. flight, so yeah, I think they were barely alive. They were still drunk. Yeah, that's right. They're just getting started. I'm just warming up. <laughs> And, uh, wow. So we have a, a, a tweet from Hooligans. Come on, giveaway for international listeners only. So I guess you're taking, you don't want to call the phone number if you're international. So maybe tomorrow we'll, we'll try to get, we'll try uh, to solve that problem. Skype gets set up for you and, uh, we'll add yet another way that you can get in touch with us. Well, yeah. can't they call from, they could call from Skype out and pay like two, three cents a minute. Yeah. They? That's true. They could. If they were that enthusiastic, they could, but so far they haven't. Hey, uh, now I've, I've forgotten and our caller's name already. Brent. Hey, Brent, thanks so much for calling in with your, your great question. Every time we find you hardware, we're very, very happy. And so stay on the line here, and Jeff will get your information. We'll send you out that Telerik Premium Collection right away. Another cool. tweet from Ann Dorball. Streaming the show has let me stress the battery on my iPhone 4. Not bad. <laughs> <laughs> just make sure you don't touch the left and bottom sides of it or the connection will be dropped. Oh, it's crazy. Well, uh, Brian, there is one last question uh, I had here from Colin Melia, who was on earlier this morning. What solutions should smaller shops consider for lab management if they can't afford Ultimate? Well, so, okay, you don't have to have Ultimate to do lab management. Let's be very clear. But lab management does have its own its own cost associated with it. So you have so, to buy Lab Manager separately from Studio. Yeah. So let's let's do a, just we'll do the quickest licensing breakdown I can in like two minutes. But basically, Team Foundation Server you can get basically free if you have Visual Studio Pro or higher with MSDN subscription. Okay. So that's number one way. 
Otherwise, they drop the price to 500 bucks. Okay, cool. Lab management, however, um, they do see it as being for bigger customers initially, and it's priced in that realm. It's still cheaper than anyone else's solution, particularly someone like uh, VMware's. Um, but it is licensed at uh, $15.99 per processor. And that processor license is associated with your Hyper-V host that you're using to run your lab. So let's say you buy the canonical dual socket quad-core server that's out there, right? Hexacore is coming, but right now you know, a dual, dual proc quad-core is pretty common. Yep. So you're looking at about you know, $3,200 in licenses for that box. Now, the key thing about that is that you could get away with using Hyper-V server, which is free, so you wouldn't even have any additional cost for that server. Just got to pay for a server license in the first place. <clears throat> exactly. So you, your choice is to use Hyper-V server and not pay for that, and it's just a little more complicated to set up. Um, or use Windows Server and have the Windows license. Right. So, you know, an average lab is going to, you know, even if we went to just a single core or single proc license, you're looking at to set up lab with Team System uh, or with the, the Visual Studio stuff to, to run you a few grand. Now, what if you didn't want to spend the money on the licenses and you want to do it yourself? You could absolutely do it yourself. Hyper-V has a WMI interface. Um, you could write your own scripts. You could hook into to, to team build and lab and to do deployments that way. And, and you could build your own front end or have your users be, you know, come get used to using the Hyper-V console. So you can do a lot of this yourself. It's just lab is going to automate a lot of it. Uh, the key thing it does with environments, for example, is it lets you snapshot multiple machines at a time. That's a bit of hairy code to write yourself. Um, so, you know, you have to weigh the cost of your development time and doing it on the cheap versus what the licenses would cost you. Uh, but to be clear, you do not have to have Ultimate to do lab management. You can simply buy your lab server licenses, and then you need at least one test professional license. Test professional provides you with the lab management UX and the testing UX. Right. Um, that's what you buy your testers. Um, if you have Ultimate, you get it included. If you don't have Ultimate, then you need to buy at least one copy of that. Okay. And one, two words or less, can IntelliTrace somehow be purchased separately from Ultimate? No. Okay. There you have it. Brian, thank you very much for spending this hour with us. You guys, I love talking to you, and I'd love to do another Dotnet Rock with you. And we're going to do some Dotnet Rock TV sometime next month, aren't we, going to call? Abs- Absolutely, if we can figure out this remote problem. Okay, well, we'll take care of it, baby. All, All right, right, man. Thanks, guys. Have fun. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 